they put a new vent in right here, so if you see me spend a lot of time in this area, I tried to convince them to put it further back, but they weren't having it. Um, all right, let me ask you a question. Anybody ever go on summer trips when you were growing up? Not a trick question. Summer trips when you were growing up. So my mom and my aunt used to get together probably because they were going insane with all the kids in the house and they would always take us on a trip every summer. And it was, you know, some were far, some were close, but there would be some, and I used the word trip as opposed to vacation because most of what I remember was the trip, like the miserable car ride. That's mostly what I remember where I've, if I remember correctly, we spent half of the trip pulled over to the side of the road giving spankings to the kids who were being disobedient. This is the 80s. You could still spank in the 80s. Um, but I would spend most of my time you know, pulled over on the side of the road. Now, of course, I was a model child, and so I obviously never got... <laughs> my wife laughed really loud. Um, I, you know, I never got in any trouble, but it's funny when we when we get together with all the cousins, they actually remind me that I was the only one who one year got a spank in before we even left the neighborhood. <laughs> um, so I mean, there was all kinds of things. But anyway, I say all that to say one of those summer trips, we drove from Florida to Kentucky, and we went to Mammoth Cave. Anybody ever been to Mammoth Cave? Anybody? All right, quite a few folks. Um, it's a pretty mind-blowing place because, I mean, obviously these don't exist in Florida, but you, you, when you're on the surface of this national park, it's a national park, and when you're on the kind of standing on the surface of this national park, you have no idea what's below. And there's just these, you know, here's the, I have a picture of the entrance. So here's, as you're walking into the entrance, kind of walking down the steps of Mammoth Cave, but when you get in there, it's miles and miles and miles of underground caves. Um, on their website, they say there's 365 miles of caves. Now, they're not necessarily all one length. They have, you know, they shoot out. They actually said they're finding all kinds of new caves. They haven't even mapped all the caves that are in Mammoth Cave. They're constantly finding new caves that they have to bring people down and kind of map out the new caves. Um, they said you could put 100,000 people inside Mammoth Cave. 100,000 people. So obviously it's a big cave. They have Christmas celebrations. Um, here's a picture just kind of going down some of the caverns. But they have Christmas celebrations where they bring in and do like services in there around Christmas time. I don't know who'd want to do that in a cave. But um, maybe if you're from the area, it's just a cool thing to do. Maybe it's like the Strawberry Festival. Who knows? Um, but, you know, we don't have these in Florida. So when I, would, when I was a kid, it was very, it was a little nerve-wracking. But it was, it was pretty intriguing just to kind of see all these different parts of this cave. And when you go around the world, there's quite a few different spots where they have these particular kind of salt, limestone type of caves. Um, and they actually just discovered the what they believe to be the longest cave in the world, like continuous cave. Um, and they just discovered it two months ago in Israel. And it just says Mount Sodom because that's where they found it. And they, they believe it's where Lot's wife turned when Sodom and Gomorrah was being destroyed and turned to a pillar of salt. 
Um, that's, it's on Mount Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah was the city that was destroyed. So they, they found this longest cave. And it, what I thought was interesting as we go into 1 Samuel today, um, David is in a cave. And he's hiding out in this cave. And this is where, I think I have a, a map, but this is, this is where they, you know, this is where it was discovered, right around the same area where he would be. Um, we've been walking through 1 Samuel for months now. We preach chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, and, you know, we go through the whole process of Israel demanding a king and then God anointing the first king and Saul, really a, a, a king that the people would have wanted. He was tall, he was muscular, he was strong, and God said, okay, here's, here's the king you really want. Here's the king you're asking for, so I'm going to give you someone after your own heart. And that's what Saul was. And that kind of quickly went sideways. And then God raised up David. And David is not yet king, but Samuel has anointed him king already. And he's in this period, this 10-year period of running. All right? Picture that. 10 years of running. He's been, he will be on the run by the time he takes over as king. He will be on the run for 10 years. Hiding in caves, hiding in Philistine territory. I mean, he's going all over creation trying to get away from Saul. And last week when we wrapped up, when Jake wrapped up, um, Saul and his men, he had 3,000 men. They were trying to attack David. And David was on one side of the mountain. And Saul and his men were on the other side of the mountain. And what was interesting is David, or Saul got word that the Philistines were attacking back home. So all of a sudden he's like, all right, forget David. I got to take my army. You know, I got to go back and defeat him against the Philistines. So Saul takes off and David is spared. And here's the thing. Here's the thing I was thinking last week while Jake was preaching through that. It's always amazing to me how God delivers his people. Okay. I mean, instead of David just hiding and getting away from Saul, or instead of him just being faster and getting away, God sends a Philistine army to go into Israel and begin to attack Israel. Saul catches wind of that. Saul stops pursuing David. Saul takes all his army. They go all back the other direction, and now David is spared. Now, if I was drawing that up, which thank God I'm not, but if I was drawing it up and I was kind of to figure out how I was going to be delivered, I don't know that that's the way I would have drawn it up. Would you agree? And, you know, if you look back at your life, you think about your life, so often we remember how we were delivered, but we don't necessarily remember the path that got us there. Right? We don't remember the way in which God did it. And the way in which God did it is, I mean, he delivers us, and you'll see this in David, all kinds of different ways. When David was in Philistine territory, he was, remember, he had like spittle running down his beard, and the guy thought he was crazy, so the guy's like, get out of here. And there's all these different ways. I remember when I was at USF, I was looking, I was on my own, paying for all my stuff, had a full-time job, was in school full-time, and I was trying, it was coming to the very end of the semester, I needed a job. And I needed a job like yesterday. And so I was looking around trying to find a job. Um, well, a, a job with my degree, let's say it that way. I had a regular job. Um, and so I was looking for a job, and I met this guy in an elevator at the USF library. 
All right, we went to the fifth floor. I studied like three times in college, and that was one of the times. And so I'm, I'm in the USF library, and I'm riding the elevator up to the fifth floor. And I see this guy in the elevator with me, and he kind of looks familiar, and I figure he's in one of my classes. And I'm not like extroverted by any stretch, so I, I'm really not one to go just talk to random strangers in the elevator. I'm using the one on my phone. And so I, I look at this guy, and I'm like, um, you look really familiar. So we started talking. We get off the elevator to the fifth floor. We're walking over to study together. We sit down at the same table. And, you know, over the course of the conversation, I find out that he knew somebody who knew somebody, who knew somebody, and there might be an internship opening for a particular job. So by the end of the day, I had an email address. I emailed the person, and long story short, you know, 16 years later, I still have that job. Like, that's the job I do to this day. Now, I remember the fact that God provided a job for me. But sometimes what I don't think about is the crazy way in which that path led to the fact that I have that job. And when you're sitting there without the job, you just want the job. But sometimes God takes you on these paths that you're just like, why on earth did you do this? Why on earth did I go this direction, this direction? I'm riding an elevator. And I see a guy, I talk to him, and then God uses those circumstances and he orchestrates the job that I have today. And then I get the job and I'm in the job, it's like two years in, and I need money. I need money for clothes. I had to start wearing suits all the time. I don't know if you ever had to buy suits, but suits aren't cheap. So I had to buy suits. This lady walks up to me and she goes, here's a thousand bucks, I want you to get some suits. I didn't even told the lady I was trying to get suits. Literally walks up to me, hands me 10 $100 bills and said, hey, I know you just got a different job and you need suits now. I want you to go get some suits. I'm like, what? Like, like, and I remember the fact that I got suits and I got clothes, but sometimes you got to step back and say, wow. Like, no one could have orchestrated those circumstances like God can. And the same is true in your life. You have no idea what God's going to do. You have no idea how he's going to do it. Never underestimate the methods God will use to deliver you from a seemingly impossible situation. Never underestimate the methods God will use to deliver you from a seemingly impossible situation. But the question, I think for all of us as we dive in today, is in the moment, do you trust that God will deliver you? When you're in the cave, like we're going to see today with David, do you trust that God will deliver you or do you take matters into your own hands? I tend to be more of a take matters into my own hands kind of guy. All right, God, I don't really like the way this is going. Why don't you give me the reins for just a second? I'm going to put us back on course. And then when we're on course, I'll give you the reins back. Are you with me? Am I the only one that thinks that way? Like, give me the reins. I'll hand them back when things are good. When, you know, when, thing, when the situation has resolved itself, I'll give you the reins back, God. And God's like, trust me. Where you're standing right now, it's a cave. You have no idea how you're going to get out of it, but you have to trust me. And that's what God says. All right, it's 1 Samuel chapter 24. Turn with me. We're going to cover the whole chapter today. It's only 22 verses. We're going to read big chunks of scripture as we walk through this passage. Verse 1, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, so remember Saul had run back home because the Philistines were invading, then he comes back to try to pursue David again once that squirmish had been taken care of. So when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. 
So David and his men had been on the run, as we said. It's probably 600 men with David at this time. And they were on the run. They were trying to get away from, from Saul. And they head down to the Dead Sea because there's lots of caves around the Dead Sea. So they head down to the Dead Sea to this area called En Gedi. And I have a map. Here's where it is today. Um, you can see right there in the middle of the Salt Sea, which is also the Dead Sea. This is ancient Israel. Uh, Jerusalem's there. You can see the different divisions of the land that was allotted to the 12 tribes of Israel, Reuben and Dan and Simeon and Judah and so on. But right there in the middle of the Salt Sea is En Gedi. And that's where David and his men go. And even, I can imagine then, because even today, it's like a little oasis. And it sounds weird to say that, but there's waterfalls, there's tropical plants, there's you know, still wild goats around. I went on Google Maps, because I like to like dive into what I'm teaching. So this is Google Street View. You know, you get a little street view and you just go to the next section of Street View. This is literally Google Street View in Engedi today. So you can see the salt of the Dead Sea in the background and this is what that area looks like. It's like a little oasis. It's actually a botanical gardens today in the middle of the desert, which is quite strange. Um, but this is where they are. They found this little oasis and then Saul goes to the Philistines, comes back. He has 3,000 of the best men in the country. Choice men. Men's he, men he hand-picked to attack David. And David and his men, they had gone into this cave. So picture Mammoth Cave. Huge cave. Hundreds of thousands of people could probably fit in this cave. It's not like they're all just huddled, you know, in the corner with no room to move. It's probably a pretty decent-sized cave. And so verse 3. And he came, talking about Saul, and he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So Saul comes into one of these caves, and obviously he's got some business to take care of. And not even a bodyguard would have gone with him. So he would have walked in. I mean, the bodyguard would have gone with, with the king everywhere. But the bodyguard's not going to go with him to take care of business. So he goes into this cave alone. And he walks in. And if you've ever walked into a dark room, or maybe some of you walked into a cave, you know, you, you can only see, a, there's only so far you can see. But everybody who is in the cave knows it's all. Everybody. You, you know, you walk into the room, it's kind of hard to see what's beyond you. But if you're, you know, my, my granddad was a cattle trader and he had a farm and he had lots of barns. And as kids, we would love to go up to these barns and my sisters and I would play in these barns. And there was one room in one of the barns where it was pitch black. And so if I was trying to get away, you know, be an introvert, get away from all the commotion, I'd kind of go in this room and wait for my sisters to come in. We'd play hide-and-seek or whatever we were little. And my sister would open the door, and I can still remember it. I'm in the very back. My eyes have had a chance to adjust to the room, adjust to the light. She slides the door open. She looks in. I'm probably 50 feet back. She can't see but five or ten feet. I mean, she can't see anything, so she looks in. And I can see her perfectly, right? The light's on her, the light's behind her. Everything I can see, I can see her perfectly. She can't see a thing. So that's, that's kind of the picture that you need to get in your mind. Saul walks in, all the men can see him, but chances are he has no idea what's at the back of the cave. And I'm sure at first they thought, well, it's probably a scout, coming in. I mean, the scout's going in the caves looking for David. We know he's in this area. We don't really know where he is, so they're going to send scouts. But then all of a sudden, they're like, wait a minute. That's not a scout. You know, they're all holding their breath, not saying anything. And all of a sudden, they see the robe. And that's what they would have seen. 
Right? Most of them had probably never seen Saul before. There's not social media. They don't have pictures going around. There's no newspapers. I mean, they probably didn't know. Maybe some of them were in his army. But even if you were in his army, chances are you didn't see him that regularly, but they would have seen the robe. Like they would have recognized and realized that's, that's the king. And so now put yourself in their shoes. They've been on the run, 600 of them, David. They're running from Saul, his 3,000 men. And here's what they say in verse 4. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you. They pull David aside. They're whispering, hey, hey, that's Saul. Here is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. They see it, they see Saul, and they know that this is the day for revenge. This is the moment. I mean, these circumstances couldn't have been drawn up any better. You know, the, mag- the, the, the randomness, the coincidence of something like this happening. You know how many caves there are in Israel? You know how many caves there are just in this region of the Dead Sea? And the guy who is tracking you down, the guy who's been tracking you down for years, the guy who's trying to kill you, walks into the cave that we are in, all 600 of us, he's by himself, and he doesn't even know that we're here. If there was ever a situation that screamed, kill him, the circumstances have aligned, the stars have aligned, whatever, however you want to say that, he is on a silver platter and he's sitting right in front of us, kill him. I mean, you, you, can, you can picture how this is going down. And I want, you to, I want you to stop and I want you to step out of the moment, I want you to think for a second if you've ever been there. If you've ever let circumstances dictate your actions, circumstances drive your actions. I can't tell you the number of times, especially working with college kids in college ministry, where you people have justified a decision based on circumstances. Well, I've been praying about getting married. And I was in the grocery store, and, you know, me and this girl, we just happened to grab for the same box of mac and cheese. And, you know, I, I know I should pray and see, well, is this really what the Lord has for me? But I have been praying for a wife, and she was there. We were the only ones in the aisle. I mean, how random is that? We both went for the mac and cheese. And, I, you know, I, why else would we have found each other? Right? Have you heard that? Or someone's, I've heard this one, my marriage. And I don't say these in jest, because it's, it's reality. Like someone's marriage is kind of going sideways and right when the marriage is going sideways, a new person starts at work. And that person gets me. That person understands me. We just hit it off and I'm happy now and and that's what God wants, right? That's what God wants more than anything is for me to be happy. And what, what about finances? You know, well, you know, I'm driving this car. It's an older car. It's, it's paid off, but it's an older car. And it broke down. I know it's time to get a new one. And right as I'm sitting there on the side of the road, this brand new BMW drives by. I mean, if that's not fate, if that's not God telling me that I need that car, I know I really can't afford that car, but if that's not God telling me that I need that car... I don't know what is. And I, you know, again, I say these kind of uh, sarcastically, but let me let you know a little secret. You can use circumstances. If you try hard enough, you can find a way to justify just about anything. I've been there and I've done it. I don't, I don't say this as someone who has not walked down those paths, but don't let circumstances, no matter how perfect they seem, 
be the only driver of the decisions you make in your life. Maybe God orchestrated them like he did with David to see how you'd respond, to see what you would do, right? Maybe he wants you to trust him. Maybe he wants you to trust him in your marriage or maybe he wants you to trust him in your finances. You know why? I just, I thought by this time in my life that I'd already be married or I thought by this time in my life, you know, when I did the math when I was younger, you know, I knew this would look, I'd look this way by this age and trust me, I've been there. I didn't get married to my 30s and I had, I had these, these things that came through my mind all through my 20s. Well, I, I thought I would be here. God, you know, what's this? What are you doing? I don't understand this. And the, the question is, well, are you, you going to, am I going to trust him? Or am I going to take the reins for just a second, make the decision that I want to make, and then hand him the reins back? And that's, that's, that's the situation that David is in. God says, are you going to try? I know it appears that he is sitting here on a silver platter in front of you. David's on the run. He's scared. He's wondering what God is doing. He's probably been on the run for years. Saul is sitting here on a silver platter. All of his friends are around him, chirping in his ear. This is, this is divine intervention. This is what God is calling you to do. And David has a decision to make. Am I going to trust God? Or I'm going to do what, what feels like, what feels right. All right, verse 4. Then David arose. I love those first three words of this verse. Verse 4. Then David arose. In every single situation in your life, there is a point of decision. David's contemplating all this. He's figuring out what he's going to do. Am I going to kill him? Am I not going to kill him? What am I going to do? It says, then David arose. Decisions made. He's walking forward. You know, spiritual warfare probably screaming at him left and right. His mind, his heart. You got to do this. You got to do this. And he sneaks up behind Saul and he makes a decision. And most of you know the story, but here's what it says. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So I'm assuming Saul walks in. Now, the, the king's robe would have been pretty outrageous, pretty ornate. I, I'm not assuming he was taking care of his business and David came up at that point and cut the robe. He probably took it off, probably set it down. We don't know this for sure. David probably came up at that point. It was probably nearby him. And at some point, David walks up and cuts off a little corner of the robe, which to me seems like a win. Awesome. He didn't kill him. He cut his clothes. Big deal, right? Would you agree? I mean, it seems like if, if I'm reading this, I'm like, so what, what's the big deal? Well, here's the significance. In the ancient world, a robe, you know, especially the corner or the hem or the edge, it said a lot about who you were. It said a lot about your status, all right? If you were, it was fancy. It was, it was decorative in some cases. And it would just, it would just tell, you, tell the world how, how important you were. It would show your, your significance. So if you were a noble or you were a king, your robe would have been you know, pretty ornate. It would have been longer. It would have been more colorful. The hem or the corner, which David cut, would have been, you know, it would have been very expensive fabric. Sometimes jewels. I mean, it just, it just depends. Remember a few chapters ago when Jonathan takes off his robe and gives it to David. 
And he says, you are the rightful recipient of this robe, his, his kingly clothes. And given Jonathan's position in the royal family as Saul's son, it would have been a pretty impressive robe. It would have been, I mean, it would have been, it would have been beautiful. Okay, and then a few chapters ago, we're going to jump around a little bit, but a few chapters ago, Saul comes up to Samuel, and he's going, they're going back and forth and back and forth, and Samuel says, the Lord has rejected you, Saul, and you will no longer be king. And in verse 27 of chapter 15, it says, as Samuel turned to leave, so Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. To tear someone's robe like David did would have almost been like an attack on them personally. Would have been kind of like the, it literally would have been like the equivalent of attack on them personally. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they all wore robes. They just they wore these long robes, and it showed how important they were. It showed their stature. It showed their place in society. Uh, Jesus actually warns his disciples about the people in robes. Right? Luke 20, here's what he says. He says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. And they love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Two more. Place of honor at feasts, who de- but who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive greater condemnation. So, I say all that just to say a robe is a big deal. The fact that David cut Saul's robe is a big deal. My favorite picture of a robe, and you probably think we're digressing a little too much on a robe, but this, you can't talk about them without this. Isaiah gets this picture. God gives him this picture probably 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. We're in the Old Testament. Isaiah gets this prophecy, this vision of the throne room. He gets this vision of God. He writes it down for all to see. And in Isaiah 6.1, here's what he says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Now, if you've read that verse, most of you have heard what I just said. Because that, I mean, high lifted up, you're picturing the Lord on the throne, high and lifted up. But most of us kind of skip over the end of that verse because it doesn't have much significance to us in today's society. But it ends with, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Can you imagine the scene in heaven? I assume this room that Isaiah is seeing is massive. All right? And the Lord's robe fills, the train of his robe fills the entire temple. It's a, it's a powerful scene. All right? It's such, it's, you know, it's just, it's, you could just meditate on that picture and how the majesty of heaven looks and how important the Lord is. So that's, that's the picture I want you to have when David is creeping up behind Saul. And he cuts the hem of his robe. It would have been like stealing the crown. That's, that's almost equivalent to what it would have been like, stealing the crown. And even though he didn't, here, here's what I want you to understand. Even though he didn't kill Saul, he was taking matters into his own hands. It's not outright disobedience, but it's just enough to mark his territory. Not fully trusting the Lord, because he could have stayed put. He could have not done a thing. He could have stayed right where he was and said, Lord, you got this. I trust you. I know Saul's in this cave, but he listened to the men. The men said, kill, kill, kill. And he's like, well, I don't want to kill. And, and you can, I mean, I can't even fathom what it must have been like. This society that they live in, death was nothing. 
I mean, you see a couple chapters ago, David cuts off the head of Goliath and he walks in Saul's presence and it says he's still holding the head of Goliath. Right, that's pretty grotesque. But that's the culture they lived in. When David had to go do his dowry, Saul asked him to kill 100 Philistines, and David actually kills 200 Philistines as his dowry. So, I mean, everybody had a sword on their side. It was like, that was society. I'm thinking like Vikings in my head. Like, that was the society they lived in. Death was cheap. So to kill Saul, after all Saul has done and all the spears he has thrown at his head, tried to kill him, chased him down all over creation. And all of a sudden, out of all the caves in all of Israel, out of all the caves in the Dead Sea, Saul comes into the cave alone with 600 men watching him. I mean, if if that doesn't seem like an amazing situation, and, and so David's walking up and David's like, clearly the Spirit was working in David, telling him not to kill him. And he's like, okay. I'm I'm just going to cut off a corner of his robe. And even in that, he was showing just a small taste of not trusting the Lord. It was God's place to remove Saul, not David's. But he's like, Lord, I need revenge, right? We've been there. Revenge feels good, does it not? Somebody wrongs you, somebody does something wrong, and you're like, all right, Lord, I'm not going to do this, but I sure would like to do just this. Just give me this one, right? They wronged me here. I'd like to wrong them just a little bit less, right? So it's not an eye for an eye, maybe a little less. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. You're not going to cut them back off, but maybe you just give them the break. You know, whatever, whatever it is. Maybe I'm the only one that does that. Um, Tyler, our police officer. Never mind. Go ahead. Um, but it, it, David's just like, here, I need the reins for just a second because he needs a taste of his own medicine. That, that's what's happening. And that is so easy to do in our lives. Judgment belongs to the Lord. It does not belong to you and I. God's got this. Somebody wronged you? God's got this. Somebody did something, somebody stole from you? God's got this. Revenge will feel good, but it's not godly. And David realizes it immediately. Verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul. Immediately when he did it, he felt conviction. Immediately when he did it, he realized what he had done. Verse 8. Afterward, so after all this had gone down, Saul had left the cave. We're going to read a huge chunk here. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but may my by my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom the king has after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me 
from your hand. So David says, look, I could have killed you. I didn't kill you. I don't know who's been filling your head with all this nonsense that I'm after you, but I've been running from you for years. All right? I have no ill will towards you. He even describes himself as a dead, a dead dog or a flea, which is basically just saying, look, I, I'm no threat to you. I, I can't do anything to kill you. Look at your army. Look at your men. I can't do anything. This information you're getting is completely false. Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice? my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put you into my hands. For if a man finds his enemy, well, he let him go away safe. We're going to come back to that verse. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And that's how the chapter ends. And it's such a, I think it's such a great picture for us of compassion, of love, of forgiveness, of obedience. And I think it's such a great, it's a great testament to everybody who just saw what David did. Don't think for a second that the decision that David made didn't affect the 600 men that were in that room. They might have been angry in the moment, but it spoke to them. Taking the high road always speaks to people's hearts. When they see the Lord very clearly in your life, when you take the high road, when you don't seek revenge, when you could seek revenge and you don't, people take notice. Because you, it's different. That's, it's, that, that's not how people normally act. That's not what they do. Right? It, let me ask you this. How many of us, and this is, I had to ask myself like 20 times this week, how many of us, given the choice of revenge or forgiveness, choose to forgive? No matter how big the situation, how many of us, given the choice of revenge or forgiveness, choose to forgive? Verse 19 says, For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? Saul asks this question. It's like even, there's even a question mark. You know, he's mind blown. Saul is absolutely mind blown by what David just did. For if a man finds his enemy, will he not let him go away safe? Or will he let him go away safe? Like Saul just does not understand what just happened. And it convicted him. He weeps. He cries. You can see that. He asks David, you know, forgive me for what I've done. And, you know, he just says, you are basically going to be the next king. I can see it the way you're acting, the way you are. And he says, you know, please don't cut off my descendants. I mean, he's already thinking the end is here. Don't cut off my descendants from me because what would happen is, you know, as a new king came in, a lot of times he would just, they would assassinate all the old king's family because they didn't want anybody else to rise to power and claim the throne. So they would come in and just wipe everybody out. And Saul's like, just, you know, just please don't, please don't wipe out my family. And, you know, it seems like a genuine response. I think David probably knew Saul all too well and knew that it probably wouldn't last long. So Saul leaves. Saul goes back to his castle or wherever he lives. And David goes back to the stronghold. 
David does not immediately, okay, wonderful decision, David. Now you get the kingdom. No, it's wonderful decision, David. Now you get to sit and wait longer. How often does life feel like that? But Lord, I've been obedient, I've been obedient, I've been obedient, I didn't do this, I didn't take revenge, I forgave, and now I'm still in the same situation I was in. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Alright, this is, Psalm 57 is a psalm as we wrap up, that David wrote. If you, if you read the psalms and you read the little passages above the psalms, they'll, a lot of times it'll tell you what's happening when the psalm was written. So if you read the note above this psalm, it says David wrote this while he was in the cave. So he's, picture this in the cave, in the situation. He says, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul in the midst of lions, I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. I love that, that picture because I think we can relate to people's words. All right, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. They're powerful words. All right, ask yourself the question. In midst of uncertainty, in the midst of the situation like David finds himself, could you write that psalm? Could you sing that psalm? Could you read that psalm? Could you pray that psalm? God, I know that the situation around me, I I have no idea how I'm going to get out of it, but I take refuge in you and I know that you are in control. It's easy for me to get up here and say it. It's a little more difficult to live it out. When you, when you read through the scriptures and you look at the life of David from 1 Samuel through 2 Samuel, we have about 40 chapters. About 40 chapters in the Bible cover the life of David. And 20 of those chapters are when he was king. And 20 of those chapters are while he was on the run. Half of the words we have in scripture of David are when he's on the run. When he's waiting, when he's asking, when he's writing psalms, when he doesn't understand it. And I, I, I think it's clear that the Lord wants us to learn something from David. So as we close, let me ask you a question. When the path you follow takes a turn that you didn't expect, what do you do? When the path you're on takes this turn and you, you can't see the end. You're stepping into the barn. You can't see the back of the cave. You don't know what's going to happen. What do you do? Do you take matters into your own hands? Let me get, give me these reins just for a second. Let me, let me take us out from here. Or do you say, Lord, I know you got this. I don't know how. I don't even know if I'm going to like the result. But I trust that you know what's best for me. Doesn't mean you're sitting still and doing nothing. I mean, David left the cave. David's on the run. David's calling out to Saul. He's moving, but he's trusting God with every step. 
All right, this is where I think we're going to go. I'm going to go. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You've heard this probably tons of times, but think of it in the context of what we're talking about. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. I read that like, do not take the reins. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Some of you are sitting here today, and maybe you're not a follower of Christ. Kind of skeptical like I was. Just like, eh, I don't know if I really like this stuff. I don't know if this is for me. And you've spent your whole life just trusting in your own abilities. We live in a culture that thrives on that. It's the world we live in. You got this. You can only depend on yourself. Don't worry about nobody else. You got to watch out for you. I mean, that, that's the world we live in. And you, you, you know God's there, but you've just never put your trust in him. You've never given him the reins of your life. All right, my, my challenge to you is that you put your faith in him Give him the reins and trust him with every aspect of your life. He came down from heaven. He died on the cross for our sins. He walked among creation, nailed him to a cross. He went in the grave to pay for our sins. He rose again on the third day and he's in heaven. Like what a, what a wonderful sacrifice that Christ made. Maybe you're here and you already are a Christian, but you're like me and you have the tendency to grab the reins. All right, give them to me. Even if it's for an hour, a little bit, just one, one little thing. My challenge to you, we need to place your faith in Jesus all the time. Easier said than done. Let him hold the reins. You just take the steps and you trust. There's a story in Luke 8, and then we'll close. There's a story in Luke 8 about this woman, and she's been sick, it says, for 12 years. For 12 years, she's been sick, and she's gone to all kinds of doctors, all kinds of, at least that's the sense you get from reading the passage. You know, she's going to all these different people to try to heal her. Nobody can heal her. And she just doesn't know what to do. And so she hears that Jesus is walking through her town that day, and she's like, I, I, I have to see him. Like, I don't know how he's going to make things better, but everything in me says he's going to make things better. That I, you know, if, I just, if I can just get to him, everything's going to be okay. And so in chapter 8, verse 44, it says, She came up behind him, and she touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased, and Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive the power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him, and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. If I could rewind my life, there were so many times in my life where I'd heard about God, I'd heard about what he, he could do, the power that was in him, and I just didn't trust him. And I was like, I don't believe in that nonsense. And I walked through most of my life, you know, I've been following Jesus probably about 10 to 12 years now, but for a long period of my life, I was just like, I don't think he's got this. And circumstance would happen, and circumstance would happen, and people would invite me to church, and you know, people would just randomly say, Jesus, and just, God was constantly pursuing me, pursuing me, pursuing me. And if I look back, you know, I, I realize I'm here now, 
But just like at the beginning, if I look back and look at my life, I'm like, wow, I can't believe, okay, that, yep, then that turn and then that turn. And all of a sudden God's like, I want a relationship with you. You've never fully trusted me and I want you to do it. And I just pray that today is the day that you do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this chapter and these examples of King David and just a man after your own heart, Lord, a man that we just think about as the king and the, the guy who pursues armies, but we don't realize that 20 chapters in scripture, Lord, you tell us about him on the run and him trusting you. And he writes Psalm after Psalm after Psalm about just crying out to you, asking you to heal him, asking you to deliver him. Lord, and I just pray if there's someone here today who's never had a relationship with you, that today would be the day that they do that. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen.